Welcome to From There to Here, a podcast for space hackers, where we invert space and time, because here can be anywhere as long as you wait long enough. This episode is personally very exciting to me because I have my longtime friend and intellectual collaborator, Dr. Abigail Devereaux, who, as you get to know her in this episode and how she thinks, you'll see, if you know me, how inspired I've been by our conversations over the years. Uh, and those conversations I took as a specification for how to how to live, uh, how to build businesses, how to think about products and how to do art, uh, and how to not consider any of those things as separate things. Uh, this maybe is a more personal introduction than I've done uh, because I want to make it clear to any listeners that, that listen deeply uh, to the conversation and understand that that the idea from there to here uh, is inspired by Abby and I's conversations over the years. Uh, and and I think in her own work, what I've seen as I've seen her evolve in her thinking and all the outreach she does in her communities that she too, I think, has been inspired by some of these conversations. And I'm so delighted to see her take some of these things I think we both felt were like odd, odd thoughts for, for these wider communities. And she's more than anybody I know in my life has been able to take those things into these these circles where where there's a pretty set way of think of thinking, and she's been able to push it, uh, and I think really get really get a lot of people at the table. So that was a long intro, but I wanted to set her up to kind of uh, tell you guys about herself. The only thing I'll say, because I'll let her say it, is that that she's she's lived many lives, and I think they're all wonderfully intertwined and. At the end of her own bio, she puts the weird facts at the bottom, which I know why you probably do that in academia, but to me, the weird facts are the facts. So with that, Abby, welcome. Thanks for doing this. I appreciate you in every possible way. Thanks, Russ. I also appreciate you. And like you mentioned, I've been as inspired by our conversations as you apparently have been. Uh, I remember many Facebook messages <laughs> Uh, and sharing uh, what exactly you would call weird thoughts. The kinds of thoughts that are not reflective of where the concrete work is being done in my discipline, where people are getting hired and where they're getting paid, where grant money is going. These, these thoughts put you on the fringes. Um, and uh, my discipline is economics though I've lived many lives, like you said. So I've come from, um, really started in theater <laughs> and the yeah. arts, really started in theater and the arts um, and writing fiction and writing fictional languages and, um, and then moving into uh, physics from there, getting inspired by Richard Feynman. And of course, I'm still inspired by Feynman because he has done some of the interesting out of the box thinking, or he's constructed ways of solving problems that aren't deducible from axiomatic systems and just constructed, figured out, as is his Feynman diagrams, he cannot uh, deduce or infer his Feynman diagrams from quantum theory. He, he developed the system that allows you to make some fairly accurate predictions about yeah. uh, part, uh, particle interactions. And so this is, I, 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 I think I got lucky because I got inspired by the right people um, as I went along. Although, of course, it's a co-creative process. You uh, seek out those who inspire you. So to some effect, you are creating your inspiration as you go along. Uh, you aren't just being uh, hit with inspiration. Um, it's a, so uh, it's a discovery process. But yeah, I did physics. I worked on the um, CERN's Large Hadron particle collider, uh, muon detector systems when I was in undergrad. That was a lot of fun. Um, and so those are out there uh, in Geneva and have discovered the Higgs, which was great. Um, okay. So it was, it's fun to be a part of that project and, and doing math and uh, then moving into to, uh, 
com- complex system science where I met you. Yeah. So and that's a, um, yeah. It's such a good uh, introduction for people. That's why I was doing this long thing so that people understood like you know, the scope of your intellectual interests. And to me, they've always been very grounded and just being a human. And as you said, being being inspired by the right people. And that's not a claim to authority I don't think you're making. You just, you have found thinkers, artists, people in between that seem to pull things together. Uh, and I love the the Feynman reference because I've always, always thought about those diagrams. Like, man, these were so ingenious as a idea. And whenever I try and talk to technical people, I try and get them to understand that like, you can't separate art in science and technology, these things are intertwined in those categories. Like, I don't know why we found them valuable to to categorize them that way and decouple them because everywhere I look that the great discoveries have been made, it seems like it was a fusion of those things. Sure, sure. Uh, John Neville Keynes says that there's three parts of science. There's the positive, the normative and art. And, and art is the doing art. And and so he at least leaves in that third part, but I think we've lost that. And and in economics these days, this is what my field, the moment, I always say at the moment, Um, because I mean I I don't really feel like I truly have a field as such. I just I I exist and I'm spread across the universe. Which always (laughs) when you when you told me you were going to go do econ, and I thought, man, this is this is kind. It surprised me, delighted me in a way, but I also thought, well, this makes a lot of sense because when you when you get down to it, what's the discipline that has to pull it all together? Oh, yeah. Unless I'm it's, interpreting like your inspiration on that. It's like, hey, this is where I got to go. Like, really, like, do my ideas have any merit? If I can't make an economic argument, what are they? Yeah. Well, you, you and I met up at uh, UVM. Now, UVM has Complex Systems Institute up there, and Brian Beckage, I don't know if you ever met him, he was up there, um, and he wrote a great paper about how um, we can kind of categorize the complexity of uh, certain disciplines with respect to each other. And, um, you know, you have, uh, you know, physics, which is, um, you know, it's, it's actually kind of not not extremely complex uh, particles are quite simple I mean, very simple characteristics and they can interact in complex ways but the particles themselves are very the, the components the agents of this system are very simple um biology is more complex because we're looking sort of at macro collections of these simple things that then interact with each other but inherently those macro collections aren't themselves super complex they're kind of complicated organic com- chemistry is an art it is not a science um, and in economics and social systems, we are looking at um, the agents themselves being complex and interacting with each other in complex ways. And so we have this kind of at the top of the hierarchy of complexity. We have social systems, and this is what pulled me in. Um, I just love I love complexity. I love um, I I think that there is there is a universe of combinatorial possibilities that open up when you start talking about um, complex things. Uh, and uh, I don't know, I, I, I'm kind of an explorer. I like to sail into uncharted waters and uh, social systems, you know, they have nothing but uncharted waters. We know nothing, nothing. Our <laughs> theories are all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it's I fantastic. I don't want to get you in trouble. I don't want to get you in trouble, but I do want us collectively, you and I, to get in good trouble here. When you say we know nothing, who is we <laughs> and what is that uh, thing called knowledge? Okay. So, I mean, to some extent, uh, what we call science, what we call knowledge, or I, I mean, I think science is a good way of putting it because science also has a history, science has a literature. Um, Science is socially constructed. Uh, it's um, it, and it's built out of things that are socially constructed, like language. So it, it is itself a, a stack of socially constructed things. Um, and and you know, and it, it's a like Stu Kaufman likes to say, uh, a system is created by its 
constraints, its affordances uh, are what it can affordances are sort of what the you know possibilities are in the in the next step of evolution of anything and then that next step of evolution we call the adjacent possible um because it's adjacent to the possible that we exist in now and so the uh, affordances are uh, all the ways in which one can move into it's the next set of possibilities uh, next set of abilities of any system um uh and these affordances are created by defined by their constraints they're enabled the constraints are enabling um uh, 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 this growth of the system this this evolution of the system we think of constraints as in economics and many other disciplines as narrowly defining some trajectory that's quite simple through space and continuous and we know everything that's going to happen and there's really no such thing as time right um because it's it's inherently timeless but in you know this theory, we have this sense of um, time being uh, very asymmetric uh, and this tumbling into the unknown um, via our affordances. And so, um, I forget the ri- original question that you asked well, me. The, the we, it's, well, the while you, you <laughs> oh the we science, you kind of got there because you got there with that <laughs> explanation, which is the we. Uh, we can't <laughs> articulate a we because as the people doing the knowing, we're creating the knowing as we come to know. And it's exactly. like as we come to know, it's like we, mm-hmm. we then have a new adjacent possible yes. in which there's that it is the adjacent possible. And we can we can define that. But let me just use it and then you can go back and help me define it. Sure. Is the adjacent possible always a position of ignorance, meaning you're at some point you're always ignorant of that adjacent possible until you move into that adjacency yes so um and if you weren't uh ignorant of that adjacent possible then uh time wouldn't be asymmetric um so (laughs) because you could essentially just plot out everything that you're going to do yeah um and uh and then there is no sense for which uh time presents anything unknown uh, and and the present the presentation of the unknown is what makes time asymmetric. So what so makes- go into that because I want to make sure we don't lose. I feel like the, there's there's like a couple words in our socially constructed language that we're using yes. here that I think throw people off, and I, okay. I don't know why I've dedicated my life to the talking about these words all the time. But like time is one of those words. Yeah. If you say time, it's like the second you utter the word time, people forget what it means. If you never say it, we all probably have some good sense of all of its multiplicity. But in this, so let's be careful here. When you say time, whether it's asymmetric or it's symmetric, break that down a little bit. So um, there's all sorts of definitions of time. um, And the idea here is that, um, at least for me, what I've been doing in my work is we move through time when we encounter the unknown. Uh-huh. And <laughs> I, I mean, obviously we're moving through time in another sense too. Um, and, but, but the encountering of the unknown is the way that the light cone expands. Um, and of course, we're never experiencing that full expansion of the light cone from edge to edge. We're only experiencing sort of this mini cone yeah. um, that's, far reduced and uh and in fact the cone the bigger cone itself increases at a faster rate than our little cones or the aggregation of our little cones um which means of course that you know our experience of time is localizes us more and more and more as we move through you know actual time <laughs> this is this yeah, is uh, I mean, it's, an interesting. Uh, it's so it's so potent the way you're described. It's like I to me it's like this is this is so weird for people listening. It's obvious to me what you're saying because I I just this idea that it's a cone and that at the top you're you're at the you're at the always at the bottom of the cone where you yeah. are right now you're always at the bottom of the cone and <laughs> so your 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 cone your cone is sort of like by calling it your cone, it gets a little bit weird as a as a concept because actually the further out you want to look at your cone, the less it's your cone. 
<laughs> it's your possibility, but that doesn't yeah. you get what I mean in terms of your position. Because what you're saying, yes. what happens is as as you move in time, actually, yes. you're always at the bottom of that cone. And so what is, quote, yours is that right. thing that the adjacent possible you're dealing with is smallest yeah. where you are right if, now. Right. If you think of your cone as, see, this is where art comes in. There's imagination in creation. Uh, and there are things that you imagine that might might exist that don't. And there are many things that you imagine that could exist that can. Uh, and there are many, many more things that you never imagine can exist yeah. that can uh, and yeah. cannot. <laughs> so are those, are so, those yeah. things outside the light cone? Are those, if you, uh, can you imagine something you, that's outside your light cone? Um, well, okay. So, so now we're getting into physics territory and I don't want to tread on the toes of, of physicists here. Um, because I think that we, um, that the light cone in physics is, expresses actual possibilities, physically realizable possibilities. But for, for people, what the physically realizable means uh, is also deeply embedded in um, what the context in which people exist in their own worlds um, and their own experiences. Uh, and so there's, uh, a, 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 so they don't have access, of course, to the full possible, never can. Um, a, and their imagination can transcend the light cone. So that's if there's so other, like, another in, in dimension. Way, you're, you're suggesting that socially or economically, however we're framing the the, within physics, so we're in this social system we're talking about, yeah. that the light cones we're actually dealing with in our life are sort of a subset of the physics light light cone. Oh, very much so. And I think that we're talking about imagination. Imagination is like another dimension um, above the light cone. So it's like a, because there are things along this axis of imagination that cannot be realized in physically, aren't physically realizable. So we can't necessarily say that everything's projected onto the light cone. All uh, our imagination transcends the light cone. Uh, uh, it, 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 and by the way, this is why I say I don't want to get you in trouble. So this is this is <laughs> for anybody listening. This is Russ pushing this point because it's just this is truly one of the things that has animated me my whole my whole life. As far as I can go back and think, it's like when we imagine, are we essentially teleporting? It's some form of physics breaking teleportation. And again, for physicists listening and those that I work with, I get it. I understand we can't move faster than light. I got it. Assume, take that off the table for now. And let's just have it like, when you imagine, can you jump out of the adjacent possible? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but the, the thing is, is that I think the physically realizable things that you imagine will be in your adjacent possible. You just might never realize them. So I don't want to conflate the adjacent possible with the next, the, the your next actual realized experience. Uh, the, so the, the next step of your realized come experience. Up with, how does this sound? Um, there's the adjacent possible, which sort of describes that possibility space of things that could happen. And then yeah. there is there some concept of the adjacent probable? Um. I hate using probability because probability okay. is um, probability is okay. So this is this wonderful, uh, very simple. This yeah, is okay. This is, is extremely long uh, paper paper and modal logic uh, by uh, Omen, who's a game theorist in 1999, and um, and uh, it's a paper on epistemology, uh, and it, I think it's called Epistemology One or something like that. And it's it's extremely long. It's extremely detailed. And his epistemology, too, is the probabilistic version. It is extremely short. And it yeah. says everything I mean, it's very funny that I... That's humorous. Was it meant humorously? <laughs> like epistemology no. one and two? No, that's good. No. And his epistemology, too, is very short. And it says everything that I've derived for non-probabilistic, completely certain epistemology carries over completely mathematically to probability theory because oh. probability theory isn't really about uncertainty. <laughs> you, see, you're, you have to be certain about your your distributions, your probability distributions, and they have to be defined over every single 
possibility that you will encounter. Not every single possibility you believe you will encounter, but every single possibility that is encounterable. And it must be fully, completely defined over it. And so that's, it's, it's, there's nothing extra that probability theory gets us about uncertainty. It's, it's a big, (laughs) I'm sorry. I, I have a little bit of a beef with this. Just say it, say it. Is it a lie? Is thinking probabilistically (laughs) sort of lying to yourself? Uh, If you think that you're characterizing human growth or social or any kind of growth and change of the system, you're not, you're not describing a system that is changing you're describing sort of your bumbling movements through a system that you're very well-versed about. Um, so it's more about movement within something. Uh, it, it's a closed system. Uh, there's no sense for which you can define the open-ended movement or change or evolution of any system using probability theory like that is at, that we, you know, as such. It's, I mean, you really got me thinking on this because I am trying to come up with something cogent for people to understand. Like probability assumes a lot of things that I think people don't realize it assumes. And that time component is really interesting to me in regards to probability. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, let's go to, because you and I both looked at just simple programs and you've spent more time on it than I have, but In what sense can you describe a simple program like a cellular automata in a probabilistic way? So cellular automata are deterministic. Um, There are ways that you can talk about sampling probabilistically from different rule sets. Um, But what are you doing as the programmer? You have to fully define the rule sets that are being probabilistically sampled from. There's no rule set that's outside of your knowledge. Um, I mean, this is different because we're talking about computable systems. Um, we can imagine a cellular, uh, can we imagine a cellular ot- uh, automata or automaton that samples probabilistically from a rule set that it doesn't know about? No, I mean, it might encounter something it doesn't know about. Um, but it's not sampling from it. I mean, that's um, why I bring it up because I always go back to these things and go, okay, well, these little computer programs or constructs or whatever people want to call them, it's like, well, you fully define them. And yep. yet at a certain point, you can't actually reason about them. And so it pokes this hole in this idea of what knowledge is. And then I feel like everybody wow. then always, everybody looks at these things, always goes, well, we can reason about it with statistics. And I go, but what have you actually gotten out of doing that? Because you you came up with a statistical model that actually may have some correspondence, but isn't the thing itself. And you know that because you define the system. Right. I, I think we hit these limitations faster in um, in sort of open-ended physical systems like bio- biology. Um, we don't hit them as quickly uh, when we're constructing systems and engineering because we can... We can um, close off the space a little bit better if we have a bridge uh, that exists in a certain region, uh, a certain way. It's it's built in a, with a certain kind of uh, you know uh, uh, is blueprint, um, uh, and it's subject to certain kind of weather. You can probably um, you know uh, uh, write down what you expect the conditions of this bridge to be over time where people are always wrong. Like they might underestimate how quickly the population grows and usage of the bridge, or they might um, underestimate how heavy trucks will get in the future. Uh, And there's a variety of things, but the parameters we're talking about then a mistake in the range of the variables, not necessarily in the variables that are uh, salient to this system. But when we're talking about, open-ended systems moving through time, we don't even know all the salient variables. Yeah. Uh, we, we can't list them. And we certainly, you know, aren't just making a mistake in the constraints of its range of a variable because we're talking about entire variables that we leave out uh, and we can never take into account. Um, so this this is, uh, when it comes to statistics, you have to have the right sort of you have to understand all of the salient variables, all of the sort of dimensions um, 
And if you reduce dimensions too much, you're going to you know, leave out causal salient factors to your system. You're never truly going to understand its evolution or its behavior. Uh, so it, you can you can uh, kind of backwards figure it out. Uh, you can you know, correct, you know, but you're always going to be wrong. Um, you could try to correct for for errors as you go along, but this is the failure of cybernetics, right? Cybernetics can never say that it's, uh, you know, uh, that it's approximating the behavior of a real system because yeah, it, man, it's so weird. I'm always thinking about this trajectory. <laughs> it's like, you're so good about writing about these. I encourage anybody listening, like go, hope so. go read her papers and just watch her talks on this stuff. It's like the history of people trying to deny uncertainty is really fascinating to me. And we yeah. kept, call, we kept calling it different things. And like, and now we're in this era that I feel like we've crossed to a new era when we think about all this fancy AI stuff that's out there. It's like, I, I almost feel like we've just decided that it doesn't matter, but we're not resolving the fact that uncertainty was always there and we were never going to get over it. We just had to be comfortable with it. Yeah. I think with, this is my, I'm, I'm a little bit of a futurist sometimes, so let's see how this goes. Yeah, let's um, do it. So... Uh, my sense with AI is what's going to happen is it's going to help us map what's easily mappable, which might be in our adjacent possible, but it is going to be really bad and, bad and brittle to things that are in our adjacent possible plus one. So our the, the yeah. that sort of next adjacent possible, the adjacent possible to the adjacent possible is going to be extremely brittle to that. This is where we're going to, humans are going to start trying to extend uh, more into the the imaginative part of their uh, sort of their adjacent possibles, because that's where we're going to have a special, I don't know, our comparative advantage in economics terms is going to lie in in imagination. This is why I gave the preamble I did. This is what happens when I talk to Abby. Like I, I start jumping around the universe of (laughs) ideas like very rapidly. Um, So what, what is that thing that you think humans have that, these these machines that we're building don't. What is it that allows it's, us to just kind of not be brittle to that? You know, it's funny because I'm gonna I'm just gonna be a coward and fall back on Carl, Karl Popper here because I don't know what it is we have, but I know what it is the AI don't have. Um, and, and so I mean, you do too. We've had this conversation, <laughs> so we know that AI is good at at recombination. But I mean, I've played with all the you know the fancy art AI. And it's it's terrible for anything that's that's you know that no one's ever painted or yeah. you know taken a picture up, uh, and there's just an infinitude of, of yeah. And so really go into that though. How do you because you're 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 you've got such a good eye and a good ear for so many things. How do you notice? Because I I think you notice instantly. You're like, oh, it can't do this. Yeah. So what is it that you're noticing? Can you dig into that a little bit? Why? How do you know that it's like, oh, it doesn't it doesn't know the unknown. It doesn't know what to do with the unknown. Um, huh. Can I dig into that? Uh, this is this is an interesting question. This gets to the root of knowledge. Of, of knowledge. Uh, I have a wonderful colleague, Roger Koppel, and he came up with this neat acronym called SELECT KNOWLEDGE. And this is um, uh, cynicological knowledge, which I'll define in a minute, uh, evolutionary knowledge, exosomatic knowledge, constitutive knowledge, and tacit knowledge. And he thinks this is the, the sort of the five ways of categorizing um, how, what humans are doing when we are saying that we know or think we understand something. Uh, and so um, cynicological knowledge, by the way, is the knowledge that we store in social systems and other people. Um, so to some extent, what we do um, our sort of heuristics for life, uh, our pattern on what other people do, what seems to work. Uh, and uh, so we store knowledge in the social system and the social system itself gains knowledge over time. That's evolutionary knowledge. Um, and, and so I think what I want to talk about here is constitutive and tacit knowledge. And constitutive knowledge is the knowledge that we gain through experience. So we know how to do something because we've done it and failed a lot and we've been through the process and it's you can't extra, you can't separate the process from the knowledge 
So this is uh, this is like Wolfram's principle yeah. of computational equivalence that there's some knowledge that can only be gained through brute force doing. Yeah. Uh, and and then there's the tacit knowledge. I think those two are actually more connected than than we give them credit for in psychology and economics. And the constitute of knowledge, I think, is 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 what I'm drawing on when I look at AI. I think there are an expressible number of things um, that uh, uh, the ways that I've appreciated art, and it's not even just visual art. I think it's about understanding, born of imagination from reading. Um, yeah. And so, I mean, our imaginations create art all the time. I know there are certain people who cannot visualize, so I don't want to say that this is what everybody does. But for those of us who can visualize when we're reading, uh, and we read a lot of books, a lot of fiction, a lot of science fiction, a lot of you know, really kind of far out there stuff, we write science fiction, and then we're, we're able to visualize. Um, and some of that is what I bring to my critique of AI art. Uh, like I can, you know, maybe I have I have gained this ability over time, just by doing it since I was a very little kid, uh, to 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 visualize um, what I would think is a, a, the way to express a concept, um, and that's not something I can do. This is not an answer to your question. It is not it, 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 an it answer is, to your question. Is, that's why these observations you're giving. There's, by the way, <laughs> I think this is constituent knowledge you're talking about. The only way you can tell me an answer to that question is to draw it out as you're doing. You're literally drawing it out of yourself because there's no way for you to say, well, this is what's happening because if you could, then I could just program it. But that's I think not what's happening is there's exactly. a shared thing that you and I have no, because you paint. It's I incompressible. Paint, right? It's incompressible. Yeah. I do think this is part of, and I do uh, to some extent, um, I, I don't, I, I, for one thing, I do think that we might, we could have strong AI buddies that are, that have yeah. this ability, but they just might have to go through life. That's, I, I, I mean, <laughs> I mean that, I'm sure there's people listening to this kind of <laughs> bummed out by that. I'm like, well, yes, art is kind of suffering. Life is kind of suffering. <laughs> and like suffering is kind of an important piece of knowledge, I think. Yeah. I, I think, I think that. Suffering takes us out of our usual set of tools that we use to solve problems. Because for suffering, that means that we don't have the tool to solve that yeah. problem. Because if we did, we wouldn't be suffering. <laughs> uh, yeah. And and it forces us to create. So I, my my mentor and my advisor, Richard Wagner, who has written a great many interesting things uh, and has been one of my biggest inspirations in economics. He's one of the most creative minds that I've encountered in a social scientist and he um, reminds his students and reminded me that social behavior, pe what people do is, is not just based on, on, you know, cooperating with other people. It's also what we do, how we learn, how we benefit from social interaction is also born of conflict and suffering yeah. and darkness. There is this light and there is this darkness. And it is the the interplay of the two that allow us to create the way that we do and allow us to innovate and change and grow and, and, and access the infinitude. And I think that humans probably don't even really, can't even really access the full infinitude. David Wolpert at uh, um, uh, Santa Fe Institute had a paper out this year uh, where he thinks that human brains might not even be able to develop the formal tools to really understand the universe. And that's just right. a constraint that we can never overcome, uh, except perhaps through some kind of evolution to a new state of Here, being. I have a, here's where I would, you're making me think of this, like, um, as I've developed my own ability to perceive and a practice of visual art, what has more than anything made me rethink some of these things is the idea of shadow and that i think Beast. if you say shadow to people most people think oh that's where there's no light and i go <laughs> no 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 that's uh -uh. where you can't tell or that's where the the light has shifted it's where the object is giving way to the environment and it's actually to me 
where the infinity of the image is coming from. And, mm-hmm. and I could make the same kind of argument about music that it's in those, yes. it's Silence. in those shadowy parts of the music where, the pauses. You, where you actually find this thing that can keep growing the more you listen to it or the more you watch it. Mm-hmm. In music it's, theory, one, one of the ways that I learned how to create digital music very well was in taking ser- as seriously the pauses and the silences yeah. as I did uh, the the melody and the 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 chorus and the counterpoint. And I do this in my own composition as well. Do people do this? This is such a strange question, but I think you can take it somewhere interesting. To, I haven't seen programmers treat code like that, where they they consider shadow and silence in their coding. Well, is that I, a the, tooling problem or it's just we've come at it from an engineering perspective rather than a artistic practice? The latter and also I think that programming is very young relatively relative to the other arts. Um, it's music, certainly. Music's a kind of programming. really is. Yeah. So we do eventually take into account the silences and the voids. Art does this extremely well. This is why uh, I, takes, I, I just keep saying this, like, this is why I love talking to you, because I was like, when I met you, I was like, man, I've been thinking all these thoughts, but I, no one else wanted to talk to me about them. I was like, <laughs> I, think every, I think everybody's a programmer. I just think they already yeah. are. Yeah, sure. And artists, artists, very much so. Uh, I'm, I'm getting back into oil painting, which I, I don't yeah. like to put my How's stuff up because it's, 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 it's wonderful. I got to communicate with the universe. I remember when you you shared a painting with me once. I was like, dang, she's good at this too. No, I'm terrible at it. And I'll tell you why. I'm terrible at it because I can only reproduce what I see. This is awful. When my mind. Imagination is being, yeah, you, so you prize imagination as the, that, that's the highest form of expression. This is what I'm trying to break out of right now. This is my current struggle with uh with painting and why I'm going back to it because I want to break out of what I can see because there's so many more layers to an image uh that I give to it that we all give to it there's emotion there's inspiration there's connections between things that don't seem like they should be connected it's kind of like how smell evokes memory smell evokes imagination so does sight so do objects so do colors and I want to bring that in and, and I and I think I think I'm afraid because I think what I do truly see when I see an image is, is going to be so fantastic. And when I finally can translate it into art, <laughs> it might look very weird. <laughs> it's, it's very fun. I mean, I love that. It's like, I, you know what my response to this would be. It's like, just do it anyway. Oh, I am. I'm trying. It, it's breaking through, breaking through the uh, sort of habit and fear is um that that that's something that sometimes just is not compressible either just takes you know pitch a a, a, a ice pick and just being <laughs> bang 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 away at the fear until it finally can, can, is small enough can i take everything we've talked about it because i feel like we're at yeah. a good point to do this what the hell do humans have to say about all of this stuff off of our planet is there anything meaningful for us to do off of Earth? Yeah, of course. Um, I think that it's just another stage for imagination. Um, we need as many stages as we can possibly get our hands on because we are small and we are tiny. And so, I mean, to some extent, this is like almost a utility theory of space, that space yeah. will improve us, change us. Um, I don't think, uh, what, what do we have to add to, to space? What do we, I, I mean, I don't know. It's, um, it, space is not, is not an entity as such. Um, but it's something we're interacting with and I believe it's going to improve us. Uh, and it, it may also endanger us as a species, uh, as individuals, yeah. but it, it, it is a new stage. I, I, I can't I, uh, say we should stay out. I, I want us to forge forward. Yeah, it's interesting because you talk, it, but it is really, this why I like, I think this is why 
I wanted to be part of creating a community and a company that that deals with space and AI because we don't know. And and we've got people that when you talk about these issues, they they have strong opinions. And it's all over. Like, I feel like there are, there are things in our society where we've sort of, they've become intuitive and we don't have opinions about it anymore. And I think for some people that's, that's comforting. But for me, it's no, being, being in that place where people have, and I say strong opinions because these things have not become fact yet. To me, it's yes. where it's fun. It's fun exactly. that if I ask different, you're, you're an optimist, I can tell on this stuff. And you're like, hey, it's all a stage for imagination, baby. Let's do it. Where other people like William Shatner, when he came back from his his space trip, he's like, man, that's the most depressed I've been. And it's like, you get people with such, and it's like, to me, that's the beauty of humanity is that the adjacent possible is keeps getting bigger and it all expands our humanity. That's my view of it is like, go chase it. Go chase the things that are uncomfortable because to your point earlier about suffering, that's that's where new tools are developed. I think one can get really bubbed out if you focus too much on how small we are and how distant the stars are. But one can get really excited too. get over the bummed out. It, it doesn't do anything for you as a human. Um, to be yeah. bummed out. It's such think, a weird perspective too. Yeah. Was, uh, <laughs> I think I think being bummed out is an artifact of thinking you know more than you do. If you believe you know what is possible, then you believe being small predicts that you will always be small. Yeah. Doesn't. That's because you don't know what's possible. Yeah, I mean, I, that's why I say it's when when I also have the same reaction when people get bummed out. They're like, "We're so small." I go, "Well, to an ant, we're bigger, you know, than anything they can imagine." So it's kind of a yeah. relative thing, and it's always going to be relative. Yeah, like the ants like, are pretty amazing uh, uh, too. I, yeah, yeah, they're awesome. It's like their bigness. <laughs> they're big, and every time I look, I go online and like, and I go look at those ant colonies, you know, that they dig up yeah. or whatever, and I'm always like. Dang, that's cool. Like their beingness is not contained in their little weird bodies and their six little legs. Their beingness yeah. is spread over that whole colony that they end up building. Yeah. And I love that this is just this, to me, this very, I don't know, maybe I'm romanticizing it too much, but when I see those ants, I don't know what role they play. The ones where they're, they're the ones that kind of, the worker ants, I don't know which breed or whatever, but they like fill the gap for the other ants to like crawl over. They form like a bridge knowing that they're likely to just fall into the hole or whatever and die. I'm like, this is some cool stuff that they just like, look, my job is to get you weirdos from that side to that. And then I'm out. Yeah. I'm just like, that's Spoke. cool. That's a cool way of being. And it's not something I think you can predict. Um, we don't have a model of an ant that will simulate that we just don't i mean answers is still way more complex than we can understand them and i'm sure ants put in different conditions um this is why i love when we bring things to space of course keeping yeah. them safe uh but you know bring creatures to space because i think it shows us how in different conditions we these these animals that or these creatures that we believe are so constrained to a certain set of well-defined behaviors behave in ways that we never expected is it um, moral to do that is it moral to to bring ants into space i'm not sure i do think that um it, that there we have we tr should try to keep them safe but uh, we don't know exactly what's going to happen um so this is a this is an area that I, I I'm not very good at. Um, <laughs> I guess my morality is more that um, that we have that it's not necessarily what is that's best for anything. Um, yeah. So we don't know if we're improving or not improving. Um, it could be that ants are much better in space because they can form sphere colonies in yeah. low grav or something, and and this is like the best ant life. 
that they could ever aspire to. And they could never have done that unless they had been helped with helped by humans to get up there. I, who knows? It's, I, 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 mean, I don't, I think like, morality I is like, very difficult. <laughs> yeah. And I'm thinking like, if I said, Hey, you have an ant problem in your house, you should go get some, you know, raid and go kill them. Nobody would go, well, that's immoral. You know, they'd be like, yeah, of course you got to take care of the ant problem. And I'm like, well, then we, I'm not, I don't know. I just think to me, it's like, we make moral decisions about animals all the time. Yes. And because they're already intuitive in society, we don't think about them. But when we say, hey, what about doing it in space? All of a sudden yeah. we're morally confused. Well, maybe, maybe that's a lesson that we should be more morally confused about doing it here. And that's another benefit of moving to space. It opens up old questions and new ones. Mm. I, I don't know. <laughs> Is this the optimist trying to find the silver lining in things again? No, I think it's really, that's why I, I, I'm having these discussions because we, we're also, man, if you've said it really well on this, we're also sure of so many things. And then when I say in space, all of a sudden we wobble and we feel really uncomfortable by that wobble is my observation. It's like, I've gotten the sense, I guess is why I'm trying to do this is like, we, we've viewed thinking about space or things bigger than the level of our daily life is somehow the provenance of people with authority. Some other authority will figure that out. And I guess I'm trying to declare in these conversations, no, no, no authority is going to figure that out. That's like everything in all time of humanity is all of us got to get involved. And I'm not making a plea for people to start space companies or whatever they're doing. I'm just saying no authority has authority over these questions. They're yes, humanities questions. Knowledge is developed through experience, and we need to have as many experiences as possible. Um, it's not just uh, uh, developed through experience. Of course, um, there's also, you know, uh, the, the theoretical knowledge. But this only takes us so far because it's limited by what we know, uh, what we can predict, which is always wrong. And it gets more and more wrong. As we not as we don't explore the uh, uh, the the, uns- the 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 unknowable unknown, I I am calling for a bunch of people to create space companies. I want to democratize uh, the movement into space as much as possible. I sent you. Uh, I'm gonna put you on the spot because it's fun. I sent you a screenshot of some ideas, and <laughs> your economist brain went into overdrive, and your complexity science brain went into overdrive. You accepted the art parts of the experience that I sent you. And you said, yeah, I don't believe this market analysis part. (laughs) I don't necessarily accept the art parts, but the market analysis was, ouch. Not sure. So what do you, what do you, is it, is it, are we allowed to treat market analysis as interpretive and inspirational? Or is that like somehow (laughs) some intellectually fraudulent thing? No, I don't think that's intellectually fraudulent. That's, that may not be the same um, question that I think, or the same, it might not really. Okay, so the market analysis that is suggestive, as long as it is, as long as it is well known and, 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 and there's big disclaimers, this is suggestive. Um, the, okay, oh, let me backtrack a little bit here. Yeah. The there is a great lie that is being told by most economists who make these projections for governments and companies that they know anything about what they're talking about. They know a little bit, um, but the projections themselves um, are very uncertain, and they're treated as if they are almost certain. So they're treated as approximations to certainty rather than what they sh- how they should be treated as as suggestions. And so I do think that market analyses should be treated like suggestions. I don't think that's how we have socially constructed the way that companies and governments treat actual market analyses. So I think when we are saying something or putting a chart forward, we have to take into account not just what our intention is, but how it will be received. And so I I think that if we're trying to suggest that market analyses should be more suggestive, 
if there's a way of 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 actually engendering that idea uh in people and and give and 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 having them accept that actually yeah this probably won't happen um or or it's really just a direction so this is it's really just giving us a sense that there could be some things here that benefit me uh or my company uh rather than you know ah this is just you know uh, probably won't happen uh you're just giving a direction that so it's i'm so sorry yeah no Uh, no, i don't know if it's answering questions you know you answered it's like it's very interesting because i'll be very very direct for anybody listening that i hear i hereby declare russell fultzmith somebody who has published many many company dashboards and many many analytic tools for enterprises of various sizes that i view dashboards as provocative Market analysis dashboards and reports is provocation. They should provoke you to tell me they're wrong. They should be viewed as process dramas by which you come to your own knowledge. If you accept them as truth, you're going to make bad decisions. Yes. And so it's like I I tend to, by default, in everything that I produce, even when I make art, you know, I'll do an analysis of my art telling people, this is good art. And I predict my next five images will be great too or terrible. And it, because I immediately want to call attention to the fact that we have all been trained to think we can predict. So I might as well get us to admit admit the bullshit as fast as possible so we get on with the actual conversation. That's wonderful. And you know, this is not how economists treat their profession, nor how they portray their profession whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you have some sense for that, right? Yeah, I this do. Is, and I, this is why I don't, I don't like to provoke the economy because I, I went to UChicago. Please do to provoke I'm, the economists. <laughs> please. Uh, <laughs> Someone uh, has to. <laughs> well, and it's interesting because I view, just like I do, I have deep respect for for economists and economic thinking and research, and I think its function is to provoke us. If only, but disruptive science has been declining. Did you see this Nature article? I did, and it's really kind of, it's, it's interesting because it's like, is that true? Well, they define disruptive science in a particular kind of way. So based on their definition, which is, uh, uh, I think it's articles that are then sort of the, you know, base node for a citation tree that grows from that article, rather than them being a part of a citation tree grown from another base root node. Um, That's how they define it. I am okay with that definition. I think it makes sense. Um, and, uh, and, and so in that, in that case, then yeah, if you do a simple aggregation through sampling through, um, the top journals and they're just looking at top journals. Now, uh, there have been other, you know, uh, looks into fringe journals and there are some people who suggest that, uh, the fringes and of, of, of a field are where the innovations are made because it's safer to do, uh, I mean, to make innovations. Is there a paper problem too? I, I, I could, oh yeah, you and I could talk about. So, is it that paper just paper papers aren't as cool as they used to be, and so that that there yes. may be disruptive science happening? It just never gets published because why bother? Well, that's right, um, and it's it's also um, it's 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 a problem also of of more people getting PhDs, um, and so if more people, and I'm not saying this is a problem for society. I, I don't, I, I'm not making any claim whatsoever that's moral or um, goal-oriented there. What I'm trying, what I'm saying is that when you have a lot of PhDs um, and you um, your university faculty sizes are not growing as quickly as your number of PhDs, what's going to happen is that you're going to um, require PhD students to start having to publish in top journals in order to get a job at the university that, at which they want to work you know, a good university, however that's defined within your field. But PhD students don't know anything yet. They can't really contribute interesting novel things the way that someone who is older or older but more experienced in their field can. It takes time to grow uh, these novel ideal ideas. 
Um, and, and of course, there's always exceptions to this, but the, um, we're talking not about the exceptions. We're talking about sort of the, the center of mass of any field. And so if that's true, we have more of these you know, uh, younger and younger people who are, who are uh, uh, publishing, aiming for these top journals, then that means that the, we would expect the innovations in the top journals to be more and more marginal because that's just reflective of who's publishing. I mean, it's really, I, I hope people listen to this and they go back and listen to that because you're not making, you are not making a moral judgment. You're saying, look at, just look at the numbers, look at the data, look at the consequences of these systems. And it, and it, it does have this, the, the tie into the adjacent possible is what is defined as the adjacent possible for science is in this not, and I'll, I'll just say my opinion, in this non-disruptive adjacent possible it's it's kind of be derivative and i think part right. of, if i were to wager a bigger theory on this it's like we haven't really taken computers seriously in society yet we're, we're still using r squared hunting as our primary way in which we decide whether we found something out yeah right um we're not even taking the idea of the concepts that have been granted to us through computer science theory um, seriously, because if we did, at least in economics, this is a fight I feel like I have to 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 wage constantly and needlessly. Um, is the idea that it's difficult for people to cap make calculations and make computations, and that it takes resources at the very least time. Um, and so, yeah, of course, people are going to then do something that's not considered to be strictly rational in, in optimization format like we do in economic theory, they're going to rely on heuristics and they're going to, you know, um, copy other people's behavior and it's going to look like they're biased, but because they're not doing this thing that we think is better, makes them better off, but they, but we haven't taken into account the cost of computation, you know? So yeah. if they're trying to keep the costs of computation down, because humans are mortal, you know, and yeah. we sleep eight hours a day and we have limitations to our time. And we're trying to keep the cost of computations down. We can, we can explain a lot more things about, yeah, human behavior. So, but even that little tiny thing, um, uh, I mean, I think it would blow apart the field of behavioral economics um, entirely, which is now sort of, unfortunately, it's kind of entering the mainstream, which means it's still on its ascendancy. Um as, as a theory, it's, it's, it's not even reached its peak yet. It's peak cold. Uh, but you know, this is, this is my, this is kind of my struggle in, in economics. Once you open the system up, of course, then you can, you have arguments for art and aesthetics and why people, you know, uh, create, uh, because they don't have access to a noble unknown, but we tumble into a noble unknowns all yeah. the time, every day. Can I, um, I'm going to try this not to a conclusion of this conversation, but maybe just wind us down on this particular instance. I'm going to go to sure. your paper that you, I don't know if it's pre-release or whatever it is, but the creative evolution in economics. I just, I love yes. this section. So I want to give you the final word. Um, I, I forgot what page it's on, but you'll recognize your unquote. Integrating creation into economic science requires a reworking of what we mean by knowledge and rationality. Knowledge and rationality are generative and local. How we choose depends on what we believe is possible. What we believe is possible is not fixed, but expands and grows around us. If economics is the science of choice, then economics is the science of what is possible at the individual and system level. Our choices themselves can change what is possible. It's beautiful. It's really a beautiful passage. Thank you. Um, it also is something that will relegate me to the fringe, probably for at the next twenty years. I I, I think, likely. Um, you, this you, is what so we're dealing with. What is driving that? Like, why? It, it, to me, it really does move me. I have like the hairs on my arms are standing up because it's like this is a is a what I would consider positive uh, in the in every way that you say positive, not just like mentally positive. It's this is motive. 
this to me speaks of a of a discipline that can embrace a long future with a big tent. Why would people yes. reject this? Because they are, they have made their careers based on the artifice that a system that they're working in can say everything that's important about the objects that they study. And they've convinced a whole lot of people that's true. And if it's not, then what has been their career? I don't, I don't really blame other ac academics for being frosty um, about the idea that not only are their theories bad approximations, I think they might even agree, most of them agree, that their theories are bad, bad approximations, but that they're not approximations at all. That is something that they will, they will rather go to their grave than admit. That their theories are damaging societies through policies that cannot take unknowable unknowns into account. Of course, no policy can unknowable unknowns, but yeah. that can't admit that there will be problems that we cannot write down, write down, that these problems may make our policy uh, behave in ways that are antithetical to our goals. This happens yeah, all the time. You, you just make me think the goal, the goal for a human and for humanity and society cannot be policy. It can't yeah. be the thing we're chasing. To me, it's like, well, what, what do you mean? I go, humanity has to be the thing we're chasing in yeah. all that that might mean. Right. I, I do think there it's complicated to exist with other humans, I do think we need to protect people. There's this we again. What does we mean? And I think we is the, we is its own light cone. <laughs> it will change. Yeah. Um, technology I do, I mean, it's, it's very, enables It's us. beautiful because I do, I do try and think in terms of when I say light cone, it's like, well, how many, how many light cones can I inhabit? You know, how many possibility spaces can I create for, I just, I just personally don't, if you say my name, I don't want you to think of one version of me. I want you to think of like all of these, all of these phases and communities that you've seen me participate in and not think of me, but think of, I wanted to, just personally, my view is just, I want you to think of all of the people that have, you've encountered through me. I just think yes. that's a beautiful way to live. And I don't want to say I'm a beautiful person. I just, the philosophy I'm chasing is just like, how do you, how do you make sure your light cone isn't everybody else's light cone, but that you are everybody oh, else's light cone? You don't have to worry. It will, it will never be. I think it's yeah. more about embracing that your light cone is not anyone else's light cone. I, I think we live in denial um, and we close off our world to change, uh, even though change happens all around us. Um, we make ourselves brittle uh, and fragile yeah. and our societies become brittle and fragile uh, because we don't embrace that we're different and that change is happening and that the uh, our, our our cone is asymmetric and that it's growing um but we if how we embrace that it's psychological but it's also technological uh and that's exciting uh because we can um have some help as humans to to embrace the change as we encounter it um, and maybe imagine the new. I don't know. I, I think that AI can be pos can be uh, uh, capable of imagining the new. I don't think we're there yet. I don't know what it will take for us to get there. I don't even know that, um, you know, a, a, a growing someone from, you know, an infant, an AI from an infant to an adult, uh, whatever that means, however long it takes, what... I'm just not even sure. I, I have no theories when it comes to this. Sure, you're willing um, to do it. It's, it's it's great. I'm just, I'm thinking as you talk, I'm just reminded, I'm reminded of the theirs that you and I have shared. And I just think to that, I actually do think of this quite often, but I'm thinking of it like, it's like a really liminal memory for me right now. Just you and I sitting at Outback Steakhouse having a bloom and an onion 
and having a conversation like this, like, like 15 years ago. Yeah. And I just think it's so cool that we're both here, like right now having this conversation and rather than being two French people sitting in an outback, looking over our shoulders, like, are you allowed to eat this blooming onion and have crazy conversations? Like <laughs> we are, we did it and we get to, we get to inspire other people. And I just, um, it's, I'm so glad you're still part of my light cone. Same. Absolutely. I want to be more part of your light cone. Let's, let's keep talking. Your end. So that concludes from there to here in this episode, but please do. You can find Dr. Abby online. She's pretty, pretty prodigious online. Please go check her out. Just Google. Uh, well, I'm sure wherever we end up putting this, there'll be links and things like that, but just do and invite her to give talks and do things. And I'm sure we'll have her back on and she will help us do things and make sure our market analysis is, is not embodying a lie. So I thank you. You've been listening to From There to Here, a podcast for space hackers. It's hosted by Russell Fultz Smith and produced by Titan Space. New episodes are released on a regular cadence on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and syndicated out to all your favorite services across the global terrestrial network. So please subscribe to listen in on discussions about the new space economy from a uniquely human perspective. And visit titanspace.co for more information about how you can start hacking in space immediately. Online versions of Titan Space's experimentation software are available at no charge. That's titanspace.co. Thank you to this episode's guest, the Titan Space crew and extended family. It's time to change how we share space. See ya, space hacker. Titan Space. Get in the box!